Wow, is it good to be back here? Feels like it's been a while. For anyone else, or is it just me? <laughs> Summer finally came, too. <laughs> um, really grateful to the elders of this church for uh, allowing me to uh, lead trips to Israel. We had another just great trip, great group of people from Crossroads. This time it had a marriage uh, theme to it. Uh, all married folks that went on this thing, and uh, I think it was pretty profound and powerful. And yeah, it, bless God for that. And I, a couple of pastors, even from in town, were on this trip um, with their spouses, and they're a little bit surprised that the elders of the church allow me to do this, allow Libby and I actually, because it's both of us. And um, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to get outside of the cloistered walls of, of, of this, although this is good, and just allow for that. Okay, we're in the Beatitudes. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. I know we keep reading probably the same text every week. Maybe by the end we'll have it memorized. This is the start to the Sermon on the Mount, or what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapters five through seven. And Jesus begins the sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, beginning with verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And here's our beatitude for today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You can be seated. So we've been learning that uh, these beatitudes describe those who belong to God, the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst, and also that each of the, these descriptions are not describing different groups of people, but all of them together form the, the profile for a true Christ follower. Jesus starts each of these with these words, blessed are they. And we, we've learned too that this word blessed Fortunate gets to it, to the meaning, fortunate are the ones, but I, I, I think literally the, the phrase that we use today that both, best gets at blessed are the is, these are the lucky ones. Like when we just say, oh man, you're so lucky. Now, don't think of that philosophically, like, like that just by chance, that's not what's going on here, because God is the one who's behind this doing the blessing, but, but, but when, when we say that, you're, you're so fortunate, you're so lucky, that, that's what Jesus is saying here. And these characteristics are shocking. I mean, we would never put how fortunate these people are with these characteristics. Another thing, too, is this blessing, it's, it's not just something that's future, but it's experiencing being lucky right now, being so fortunate right now. Does that describe you? 
Like, wow, I'm just, I'm so blessed. Now we come to what I think is the high point of these Beatitudes because there is this ascending thing that is going on. And in this one, I feel like we're, we're, we're scaling the peaks. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that there will come a point in time when your eyes literally will see God? I remember uh, a few years ago when, when Gabe was getting recruited to play football at Wheaton College and the football coach um, had this recruiting weekend and he brought all the parents and players into this room came into the room, his name was Coach Schweider. Uh, he looked like a California surfer, long hair, uh, 56 years old. And he, he starts the whole thing off by just saying, you know, you can Google our, our, our website on football, you can see our records over the last eight to 10 years, all of that kind of speaks for itself. It's like he took his piece of paper and just took it to the side and said, here's what I wanna talk to you about. I wanna talk to you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, because if you don't love him, then Wheaton isn't right for you, and, we're not, and, and you're not right for us. And then he just kept going. And he said, he said my dad passed away when he was 60, year, 60 years old of a, of a heart attack. He said, I'm 56 years old. He said, if I go the same way my dad went, he goes in four years. And a big smile came over his face. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. And he looked at all these players and he said, are you ready to see him? Are you ready to look at him? Like we're going to see him. And we can, we can in, our, in our life see a lot of things that thrill us, that even amaze us, that, that fill us with wonder and joy. We can even see things that, that cause us to fall down and worship him. But listen, anything that we see in this life will be but a fraction of what it's gonna be like when we see God. I mean, seeing God is the goal of every religion. Seeing God is, is, is the motivation, I think, behind everything that we seek because our hearts have been made for God. We've been made in such a way where we long to see him. And all of our attempts to satisfy our eyes are our only attempts to see God. I mean, we see this in Moses. I mean, all that Moses saw and, and all that he sought to see, I mean, all that he saw just even in terms of God. I mean, he saw the burning bush, the plagues. He saw the parting of the Red Sea. He saw God coming down in thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. He even saw the feet of God. He saw the hand of God. He saw the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments. He saw so much, but then he says to God, God, this isn't enough. I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. I want to behold you. God says, this is where I have to draw the line, Moses, because to see me, it would kill you. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say that the pure in heart will see God. 
So that begs the question then, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Now we, we often equate the word purity with the word righteousness. And Dan Mike, uh, a few weeks ago, rightly taught us that the Hebrew word for righteousness has very little to do with how we understand purity today, and it has a lot more to do with how we relate to each other, especially to the underdog. I mean, that's, that's what the, the Hebrew word for righteousness means. It means to look out for the underdog. It's to disadvantage ourselves, to bring advantage to another, especially those who are in need. Now, this doesn't mean that the Hebrew Bible, which is also our Bible, our Old Testament, doesn't care about purity. It absolutely does. It just has a different word. Psalm 23, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may come into his presence, but he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 51, verse 10, David, after he had sinned, this, this is the high point of his prayer. He says, God, would you create, would you recreate in me a, a clean heart? And that's what the word in, in Hebrew for purity, it, it means. It means clean. Clean as opposed to dirty or, or as opposed to stained. Same word here in this beatitude because the New Testament is re written in Greek and the Greek word here is the word katharos. And if there are any Cathys or, or Catherines in this room, if you know what your name means, your name means clean. And again, it's clean as opposed to tarnished or dirty. It, it, it literally means to be unstained. Now today, we, we, we have all kinds of notions about, about what's clean and, and what's unclean. In fact, every culture has its own categories. As I learned a couple months ago, every family has its own categories. I mean, you guys were looking at me with such disgust when I said that our family shares a toothbrush. And then I got 10 toothbrushes in the next three days. <laughs> you guys love me. <laughs> They're still all in my office. <laughs> but this idea of clean and unclean, it's, it, it's a major theme in the Bible. There's a whole book in our, in our Bible that deals with this theme. Anyone know? Leviticus, of course you didn't know. We don't read that book. Um, but what Leviticus does, it, it literally spells out to us what it is that makes us unclean. And, and, and it tells us that a person was unclean if they touched anything dead. It could be a dead person, a dead animal, even mildew. It says that a person is unclean if, if they were in an unclean state. And I, I don't want us to think too long about this, but if you have a bad case of diarrhea, or uh, PMS, leprosy, even open sores, this would make you unclean. Person was unclean if, if they ate food that wasn't what we call kosher. Certain foods were declared unclean. Now, now the basic principle in Leviticus is any contact with dirt, disease, or decay made a person unclean. And that unclean made a person unfit for the presence of God. So you are not allowed then to worship for seven days. And if this happened during a feast week, uh, you, you, you would have to bow out of that feast. You couldn't participate it. And, and, and you would need to wash. 
Now, before these laws scare you, before you, you think all of this is extreme, we're not that different. I mean, I see these same laws posted in public restrooms. Think about what we do before meals. Most of us wash. Uh, when you're getting ready for, for a big date, um, you, you don't just go into that thing thoughtlessly. You, you, you wash, you, you cleanse, you, you put on your best clothes. Um, I mean, there's, there's all this prepping. Or think about all the, the, the people, places, things that we might consider today to be disgusting. Now, I'm not talking about us because no Christian is ever to think about any person as disgusting. I'm speaking more now from, from our, our, our cultural, through our cultural lens. It was about four days ago when we were in Israel at one of our final meals. And I, I, I took a drink out of my Coke and there was something material in my mouth. And I quickly took it out and looked at it. It was a dead fly. And, and then, and, and, and then uh, that brought me back to second grade when this kid in my class, <laughs> Ken Boss, Rob Barr, you remember Ken, don't you? I saw Rob today. And he, he literally took a fly out of a windowsill and put it in my milk container and it came up my straw when I was drinking my milk. That was the last milk I had in elementary school. It was done, over. But why? It's just a fly. Look at you guys, you're so disgusted by it. Because it falls in that category. I mean, this is what God is doing in, in Leviticus. He's, He's using these laws to teach us about sin and its, its effects because what dirt, disease, and decay do to our body, sin does to our heart and our relationship with God. I mean, just think about what, what dirt, disease, and decay do in relationships. They alienate. Think about what our culture's done with smokers. They're over there. To some, it's disgusting. Think about the homeless. We quarantine them. Why? Just why? I'm not even gonna answer that question because you know the answer. We have these categories of what's clean and unclean. And not only does it alienate us, dirt, disease, and decay, but also it infects us. I mean, today there's this obsession with bacteria and pollutants and oxidants. I'm like, what's an oxidant? And everybody wants an antioxidant. Does anyone know what an oxidant is? Raise your hand if you're like me and you don't know what an oxidant is. Thank you, you're not, I'm not alone. And this produces all these rules, rules about things that we can't touch, places we can't go, food we can't eat, air that we can't inhale. And much of this is for good reason, because these things not only soil and stain us, but they disfigure us and over time can destroy us by defiling us. Same with sin. Sin soils, it stains, it disfigures. It defiles. 
You know, I've pastored in three different contexts, Indianapolis, Chicago, Grand Rapids. And I find it very interesting how so many people today feel this deep sense of defilement. Like they feel dirty. And I'm not even just talking about religious people, but irreligious people just as much. And it's interesting to me because here we live in this world come of age where, where so many have grown out of this belief in, in such things as the holy God and heaven and hell and sin and all of that, where people can create their own belief system, systems about what's right, what's wrong, um, what's clean, what's unclean, and yet they still feel this deep sense that there's something seriously wrong, like, like, like they're failing this exam, and if other people found out who they really were, they wouldn't be accepted, they wouldn't be liked. Why is this? People feel stained. They feel defiled, they feel unclean. They feel this deep need to wash. This is going on in Jesus' day. Listen to this from Matthew 15. Then some Pharisees, verse one, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, by the way, we don't look at details, but Jesus is in Capernaum. They walked over 60 miles to say this to Jesus. Why do you and your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. They walk, 60, they walk 60 miles to say to Jesus and his disciples, you guys aren't washing. And we know that Leviticus wasn't enough for these guys. I mean, they were so passionate about purity that they added hundreds upon hundreds of more laws to God's law. Don't touch this, don't eat that, don't drink this, don't go there, don't be around those people and wash for this reason, wash for that reason. I mean, their life was consumed with this. And why? Well, the Pharisees desperately wanted to believe that what's wrong in our world is out there. So they thought, as long as I stay away from that place and those people, and I don't touch that, if I can just so clean the outside of the cup, then the inside will be clean as well. And so their whole strategy with dealing with this sense of defilement is outside in. So they obsessed with image. It, they were obsessed with how they looked, their appearance, how well they performed, how well they could clean the outside. Now it's easy to beat up on the Pharisees, but before we do, let me ask you a few questions. Why are you such a perfectionist? Why can't you let go? Why do you always need to be in control? Why are you always scared of letting people down? disappointing them? Why are we so obsessed with our image? Appearances, all of that. Why do we always feel this need to blame someone else when something goes wrong in our life? Why is it such a fearful thing for us to be real? 
Why do we spend so much time trying to hide certain aspects of who we are? Why do we always feel this need to prove ourselves? Why are we so driven to succeed? We too have, have this deep sense of defilement and, and we're still trying to wash and we're still trying to do it outside in. And so in some ways, we're, we're no dif- different than these Pharisees. Or, 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 or think about it even from this angle. Think about all the isms of our day, whether it be communism or socialism, capitalism, materialism. I mean, they, they preach to us every single day that all the problems of the world would be fixed, that we would be fixed. All the economic systems, all the political systems, the social systems, if we could just get the right system in place, everything would be okay. And I think this is why people are so, uh, why, why politics have become religion to people these days. It's this hope that if we just get the right president in place, if we put the right policies in place, then everything's gonna be all right. We're gonna be all right. But here's my question. When are we gonna start listening to Jesus? Because he so confronts this thinking. You ask Jesus what's wrong with this world? And he's going to say, it's it's not out there. It's right in here. I mean, listen to what he says to these guys who travel 60 miles to see him in in Matthew 15, 10, and 11. I think I have this on PowerPoint. Jesus called to the crowd, called the crowd to him. I love this. (laughs) He said, listen and understand this. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And then he explains this further because his disciples still didn't understand. He said, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile one. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying the source of our defilement, our stains, all of our unclean, it comes from one place, the heart. Our heart. And he's also saying that outside in, is, it, it, it's never gonna get to the source of our defilement because it's never gonna get to our heart. We can't clean ourselves. And yet this has been the strategy going all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. I mean, how did they deal with their unclean? Um, they hid. And we've been hiding ever since. And in this desperate attempt to cover their unclean so that God couldn't see it, or or no one else could see it. They covered themselves with with fig leaves. We're not different. We're still fashioning fig leaves to cover our stains. The fig leaves of, of image, we use our appearance to cover up what's going on in our heart. I mean, we still think that if we can just get the outside of the cup clean enough, 
somehow that's gonna make the inside clean. I mean, just think for a minute how much time and energy and money we spend on our image. There's also the fig leaves of blame. I mean, listen to Eve saying to God, God, it's not my fault. The snake made me do it. God says, no, Eve, it was your heart that desired it. And then there's Adam saying the same thing. It's, it's the woman that you put me with. She made me do this. God says, no, Adam, you chose to eat the fruit. And think about how often we, I don't even want to put it on others, but ourselves, how often we play the victim card today. It's because we have the, we lack the guts to actually take personal responsibility for ourselves and our sin. It's a lot easier to blame parents, bosses, circumstances, presidents, even God. There's a fig leaves of human effort. If I just try harder, if I just perform this better. And this is the problem with so much religion and spirituality. If I, God, if I just perform well enough for you, if I do enough for you, then maybe that will cleanse me. This is why Jesus calls the most religious people of his day hypocrites. A hypocrite is nothing but a phony, a fake. He says in verse 7 and 8 of Matthew 15, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right about you. You worship God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. Because they had all this adherence to these rules, this hyper-spirituality. But it was fake. It made them fake. Do you know right now that we can't hide? Not really. And that we can't really cover our stains, that we can't cleanse ourselves. I mean, maybe, maybe the most tragic figure in, in, in Western literature is Macbeth after she's committed a murder and, and uh, months, years later, she's staring at her hands and she says, out damn spot, out I say, the smell of blood still. She says, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And that's so true. All, all, all the perfumes that the world has to offer, they're never going to suffice. All the strategies that we have for hiding and all the things that we can hide behind, whether it be our career, whether it be um, our status, whether it be our, our place in this world, whether it even be all the good things that we do, our reputation, whether it be uh, our, our marriage or our kids. I mean, there's so many places where we can attempt to hide. Malcolm Muggeridge, I think one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. I mean, one of my all-time favorite books is Jesus Rediscovered. He also writes uh, an autobiography of his life. And he describes his time when he is in India. And he's out looking over uh, th this beautiful river um, kind of early in the morning. And off in the distance, he sees a woman taking her clothes off and getting into the river to bathe. And he literally just literally found himself just getting right into the river and swimming towards her. And as he 
got really close to her, she turned around and to his utter horror, she was a leper. Literally, her face was like one big scab. Um, and he said he wanted to just shout out at her, what a lecherous sight. He said until it dawned on him, what a lecherous heart. What a lecherous heart. That's what's wrong with us. We all have a lecherous heart, a leprous heart. I mean, remember the story of Naaman, that, that proud general of the Syrian army, second in command, powerful, rich, a celebrity in that world. Yet one day he wakes up to the fact that he has leprosy. And le leprosy automatically puts someone uh, in, in, in that bucket of being unclean, of being disgusting, of being quarantined. Whenever in public, having to say unclean, unclean, unclean. So he comes to Elisha with all his unclean, but he comes to him like a celebrity with his entourage of chariots. He's dressed like a king. Elisha doesn't even bother to come out and say hello to him, but instead just sends his servant to tell him, if you want to be made clean, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman then is just losing his mind, so angry and upset that, that someone would so belittle him, and, and in all of his rage, we see what his true leprosy is. It's not his skin, it's his heart. And for his heart to be healed, he has to go God's way. Which means he has to give up his image, he has to give up all his striving, he has to give up making this all about Naaman, he has to let go of all of his pride, and he has to enter the Jordan. In fact, the word Jordan means to descend or to go down, because here's the bottom line, unless we're willing to go down and become very low, our hearts will never be healed. So Naaman has to strip himself of everything but his need. He takes off his uniform, and that was more than just taking off clothes, but it was taking off his identity, it was taking off his status, it was taking off his, his self-importance, his significance. And he has to take off Naaman, the celebrity, the famous one. He has to take off all the things that speak to his greatness until he's utterly naked, and the only thing that people can see is his leprosy. And I like to imagine the humiliation that a guy like that felt. Seven times he had to go into the water and wash. And the Bible says he did it. He humbled himself under God's almighty hand. And he went really low. And God raised him up and healed him. His skin was like that of a little child, the text says, and that too is just a picture of what God did to his heart. His heart was healed. You know, we can come to church, we can do a lot of good things, we, 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 we can even believe a lot of right things. But have we really gone God's way? Are we too proud to be healed? In fact, I think the reason why, why, why so few of us sometimes never experience healing is, is because of pride. 
We want to make this all about us. We want to rely on who we are or what we are, what we have, whether it be our gold, our status, our being good. We can't take it off. It's become a part of us. It's become what we have put our identity, our confidence, our significance. And I think this is why being pure in heart is preceded by being poor in spirit. Preceded by being meek. Preceded by tears. Preceded by hungering and thirsting because all these characteristics speak of need. Desperate need. And until we know our need, our desperate need, and know where to bring that need, we'll never be healed. I'm talking about our hearts. This morning, do you know your need, or, or, or are, are many of us still trying so hard to cover it up, dress it up? Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Combine that with God, what God said to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but I, the Lord, I look at the heart. And I think about Jesus, how he's described in, in Revelation chapter one with those eyes of fire, th th those blazing eyes, they don't just look at us, but they look through us and they blaze right down to our hearts. Jesus can see everything that is in our hearts. And for us to be clean, for our heart to be clean. We have to come clean. We have to be willing to see what's underneath and, and not just what's underneath all of our badness, but I think even more importantly, what's underneath all of our goodness. Because sometimes our most deceitful motivations lie underneath our most righteous acts. And let me end with gospel. There still is a river where all of us can go and wash. It's the river of Christ's blood. But we have to come to this river the way that Christ comes to us. We, we have to yard in, we have to go down, we have to get low, we have to strip ourselves and, and lay aside all, all the things that we trust. We, we need to take off our fig leaves. We, we have to come to him poor, we have to come to him meek and humble with our tears, hungering and thirsting as Christ comes to us. We have to repent of outside in all the ways that we make this about us, our image, our appearance, how well we perform. It's only in this place where we really can hear him say, where he's made himself so low and we've made ourselves so low, we can hear him say, it's finished. I did it, all of it. I did what you could never do. I, I, I lived the life that, that you were supposed to live. I died the death that you deserved to die. In fact, I love the, the, the final verse of the old hymn, it is finished. Cast all your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete.
That's a hard, that's hard to lay down. Our doing, our deadly doing. Revelation 22, the last chapter of our Bible that, that, that describes the new heavens and the new earth that awaits and, and, and it says in this one verse, and they will see his face and God's name will be on their foreheads. Listen, we're gonna see him and we're gonna be speechless, we're gonna be breathless, we're gonna be awestruck. It's gonna be a hard thing the moment we see him to even take our eyes off him. And just think how incredible it is to see loved ones that have gone on, whether it be a spouse or whether it be a son or a daughter, whether it be a parent, um, someone we love very much. This too is only gonna pale in comparison. Um, When we behold him, our true husband, our true father, and John 1 says that when we behold him, when we look at him, We're going to become like him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this morning, if you feel a sense of defilement, sometimes I just, I can't just sit there. I got to do something. I didn't even know we were doing baptism today. You know, this is how these things work out at Crossroads. (laughs) But, if you want to just come in, in, in what we call mikvah, God, wash me. And treat this water like his blood, that, that, that river that flew out of him, that we can be cleansed. God, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to make our hearts clean. But through Christ, you answer David's prayer. You recreate in us a clean, a pure heart. God, may we not be too proud to be healed. In Jesus' name, amen.